You walk around as an Earthman. You're adding up your net worth, and you leap three steps in a single bound. You know just what it will come to if it is all taken from you. It will turn up at the lost and found. Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mom Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have been listening to the song Earthman. It is a remake. It's the unplugged version recorded in 2012 by Bill Bromfield. Bill Bromfield owns Clockwise Records. He's a producer, an arranger, a songwriter, a bass player, a guitar player, a singer, as we just heard. He's also an engineer, and he conducts orchestras, electricity, and trains. How about that? And he's on the phone right now. Hi, Bill. Uh, hi, Todd. How are you doing today? I am well. That's quite the um, record there from producer all the way to conductor. <laughs> well, 
conductor only in the sense that I I um, I do conduct electricity. <laughs> I, I rechannel it in different directions, and uh, you know, uh, so and also I I take tickets off of trains. So now, what do you mean you take tickets off of trains? I just meant that I give you know a conductor is a is the guy on oh, the yes, train. Oh yes, yes. But have you done that as a career, a job at some point? I know, no, I haven't. Oh. I, it's something I always thought I would enjoy because, uh, in case I didn't get the job as engineer. Well, you know what? You do have. I can see you in the the, the dark jacket and the hat. <laughs> right. You'd be perfect in a movie. You know, here's the conductor, and Bill walks up, and we go, we know that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I'll, I'll tell my agent. Okay. <laughs> now. That song, Earth Man, that's a remake because you originally recorded that, I think, in 1976 with the Space Opera Band. Is that correct? Well, yeah. Now, just just to be clear, I wrote it in 1976 for the Space Opera Band. Okay. And we performed it once. We did not record it then. I recorded it again in the 90s for an album called Music from the Big List, uh, or Music of the Big List. And this was, uh, I was part of a user group for a, a machine called the VS-880, which was a Roland recording machine, an eight-track recorder. And everybody was asked to contribute. And I had, um, I had this song that, that I had written and never recorded. I had written it for the Space Opera Band but it never had been recorded. So I recorded it for that album, but uh, that was not the space opera band. That was just Bill and the Bills. When you say the Bills, that means you're playing and singing everything. Yes. Well, let's let the people hear a little bit of that recording from, what year did you say you recorded it? Uh, 90, uh, 90. That's okay. Mid-90s, how's that? 90, Yes, that, that's close enough. All right, here it is. Now, was it difficult taking that recording and then kind of doing it unplugged? Um, not really, because the original uh, song that I derived that from was actually written in the 60s. Uh, it was a song called Rubberman. Mm-hmm. 
and it was an acoustic song, and it sounded kind of like the very beginning of the uh, of the first recording you played. Okay. It, um, it was like that, except it was like that all the way through. So I basically, when I made the version, the most recent version that you played, uh, you know, the one you played at the very beginning of the show, mm-hmm. um, I combined the two. I, I took the, the first verse was done in the style of Rubberman. And then the rest of it was done in the style of the of the rock version, but acoustically. But acoustically, the arrangement is very similar. It's just I used an acoustic guitar. I didn't use any drums. I think there is. I'm not. I don't remember is if there's bass on there or not. Um, but there was no drums. I just used the guitar uh, as as the drum. Uh, so it wasn't no, it wasn't that difficult because it wasn't that different from what I had done before. Now, when did you begin being a all inclusive engineer, producer, performer, doing all the uh, instruments and the singing, the back background vocals, everything? Was that something you just always did? Uh, it evolved over time. Uh, I started recording back in the '60s just by myself, but it would just be vocal and guitar. Mm-hmm. Then I then I acquired a bass and I started adding bass. Um, then um, then I got a drum machine and I started using the drum machine and I got you know then I got one that you could actually program and make it anything you want. So it was a it was a gradually over time that I that I did that out of necessity really because uh, it was either too difficult or too expensive to get other people to play those parts, mm-hmm. which is always a preference. Um, you know, if it's all me, it, it gets, uh, it gets a little bit uh, difficult to, to make it different. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's always the same style, you know, yeah. it's always me. So it's, it's nice when I do get other people or I'll, uh, and the way I get around that is I'll, I'll listen to other people and say, Oh, he's doing something I've never done before. Let me try that. Um, so, you know, that's, that's how it started. So how did music start for Bill? I mean, were you, was your family musical or was it something where you just, you went off on a tangent and everybody else went to the beach? No, actually my mother was among Everybody in my family was musical except for my father. He was not. I mean, he really, he actually was. He could actually sing, but he would never admit it. Um, My sisters played the piano. My mother was a very good piano player. Um, And she insisted that when I was six years old that I take piano lessons, which I did for five years. So I had that, that foundation, but I was never into it. That whole five years. The only thing I was into on the piano was doing my own stuff on the piano. I never, I didn't like any of the stuff I did with lessons. It was mostly, if you're familiar with John Thompson, any any people who took piano lessons back in the old days knows who John Thompson is. And he wrote the book for the pieces that you're supposed to learn when you learn the piano. Um, so I, um, but I was never really into that. And it wasn't until after I quit taking lessons and started, uh, there was a guy I met at a camp who played piano uh, by ear. Uh, he would play rock and roll piano by ear. And I thought, now that that's that's what I want to do. So I started picking up on that. And that that's where it started. 
Well, I noticed though in your on your Clockwise Records site that um, your bio it doesn't mention piano. It says guitar player, bass player, singer, arranger, producer, but nev- never mentions piano. No, it doesn't because I'm not a very good piano player. Not that I'm a great guitar player, but but I'm really not a good piano player. I can play, you know, I know where all the notes are and I can put together a piece, but I have to assemble it. I can't just sit down and play. The, the stuff I do on keyboards is assembled. It's not just spontaneously played. Well, right. as long as it comes out sounding good, who, who really cares? Although... No. It, it makes it difficult from a timing standpoint. In other words, you, what you're saying is you wouldn't sit in with someone if they said, come on up and play the piano while we do this new song. No, wouldn't do that. I would play bass or I'd play guitar, and that would pretty much be it. Yeah. Now, how did you get to playing bass? Um, you know, it's funny. When I first started, and I was in a band in high school. We didn't even have a bass. Um you couldn't hear bass on the radio in those days. So nobody cared about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was AM radio and you just didn't hear the bass. Um, but uh, at some point, you know, we obviously could hear the bass and I always, I always really liked it. And at some point I bought a cheap bass somewhere to record with. And, uh, and I also gigged with it. I did some gigs as a bass player. Um, so that's how it started. And I think I've, Got that bass probably in the uh, early to mid seventies, something like that. Now, uh, where did you grow up? Where Where did all this happen? Um, I was born in Albany, New York, but didn't play music any any music there because I left there when I was just before my sixth birthday. Mm-hmm. So I started taking piano. Then we moved to uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and. Uh, that's where I started taking piano lessons. So it started in Hartford, West Hartford, Connecticut. Now, was your dad into insurance? No, he wasn't. He was one of the very few people who lived in Hartford, Connecticut at that time who was not into insurance. <laughs> the only reason I say that is during the early 1970s, I ended up working for Allstate Insurance Company in West Hartford. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, when that, some when someone says Hartford, it's always insurance pops right up in my head. It is the insurance capital of the world. They yeah. have a they have a golf tournament there called the Insurance City Open. Mm-hmm. It is Insurance City. I don't know how wonderful a thing that is to be, but that's what it is. It's Insurance City. Now, what was your dad's line of work that pulled him to uh, Hartford? He business systems. Okay. He, he worked for a company called McBee. I don't know if they exist anymore, but McBee merged with Royal Typewriters. Mm-hmm. Um, but the McBee side of it was um, systems. This was before computers. They used something called Keysort, which was like IBM cards, yes. except IBM cards hadn't yet been invented. And uh, Keysort was where you could take a, this long needle that was maybe, I don't know, 18 inches long and go through a stack of cards, and it had holes punched out of them, and you could sort things that way. Mm-hmm. And then, then very early, you know, they had very early computers. They had um, there was a well-known but now forgotten computer called the LGP thirty, which was uh, McBee was. Uh, I don't know if they invented it, but they sold it. So that's what my dad did. Now, did you stay in Hartford your whole like uh, junior high, high school? No, 
No, I didn't. Um, I was in I was in West Hartford until uh, the end of seventh grade. And we moved actually to what would now be called Bethesda, but it was really it had a Washington, D.C. address and it was right near Glen Echo Park. Mm -hmm. um, and we lived we lived there for a couple of years. And so I went to school. I, I did eighth and half of ninth grade in the D.C. area. Then we moved back to Connecticut, back to West Hartford, because uh, my dad had gotten a job in Washington and the whole that whole section of his company was dissolved. So he went back to Hartford. Mm -hmm. um, so then uh, the, the rest of high school, I went to um, uh, a place called Suffield Academy, which is in northern Connecticut. Sure. I remember the name. Oh, good. Now, Are you from that area? I'm from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, but I lived in Connecticut for two, two and a half years. Oh, um, wow. So you, I got, lived in, you lived on Cape Cod? Yeah, grew up there. I'm, oh. I'm wearing my Cape Cod sweatshirt as we speak. Oh, oh I love Cape Cod. I just, that, that was like paradise. Yeah, unfortunately now it's the one of the world's capital for um, great wake sharks. Oh, so really? all my surfing friends, because I have a surfing background. I own surf shops on Cape Cod and up in New Hampshire, Hampton Beach. And you wouldn't catch me in the water now for anything. Really? Yep. It's, oh, and it, it has hurt the, the tourism uh, to an extent. Well, but, I guess so. Yeah. And it's just, it's because the sea lion population just exploded about three or four years ago. And of course, great whites, that's what they eat. So where they go? Where the sea lion goes, the gray whites do. But yeah, that's where I grew up. And then I lived in, in Connecticut. Uh, and I lived in the Boston area for a long time as, as well, just south of Boston. But then I moved down here in 1990. Oh, okay. All so, right. So how did you work your way? Now, you ended up living in Nashville for a while too, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was in... Um, that, that You're leaping way forward in okay, time. Okay. Then go back and, and, and keep bring me up to speed here. <laughs> okay. Well... Um, you know, I finished high school. I went to college at, uh, at UVA in Charlottesville. Yes. Um, and I, that's when I started. I, I actually started performing in high school with a, with a band that, that I formed with another guy. But when I got to, um, when I got to UVA, I started playing solo. I bought a, um, an acoustic 12 string and I started uh, doing solo gigs. And did that, you know, through college um, and on up until about seven, you know, after after I was done with school, I, I ended up in Boston and uh, uh, formed a band there in like 1971, I'm guessing it was. Um, and I had that band for a while and then I had went moved from band to band in Boston until about 77 uh, and then moved to the D.C. area and uh, uh, started playing solo again and also with other people sometimes. Like I would do duo gigs with people, stuff like that, but didn't have a band there for quite a while after that. But started doing a lot more recording. Now, was the recording something you did just so you had something to hand out or it was just an interest of yours? Um, it started off just as an interest. I had, uh, I think my father had 
had this old reel-to-reel uh, machine that could do sound on sound. Mm-hmm. And um, I messed with that as a teenager. Um, I think I even took it to UVA with me, and I set up a little studio in the attic of the rooming house where I lived. Um, so it was more of an interest. I was really just fascinated with the whole recording process and and uh, was just interested in it. I didn't I didn't hand out anything for a long time. Now, when you were uh, got out of school and you were still doing the solo stuff, did you go back and do band work or did you remain a soloist? Um, I pretty much remained a soloist or I would work with one one person or two people. Um, but, uh, I'm trying to think, was there any other bands in there? I don't think so. I don't think there was a band, uh, until, um, well, yeah, I, I, as I said, I formed a band in 71 that went till 77. After that, I didn't really have a band until the nineties, um, 97, I think it was, um, which was a uh, corporate function, wedding, you know, one of those kind of bands. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was, we were a little different in that we were just a four-piece band. We were a guitar-based band. I did not play guitar in that band. I played bass only. Uh, I I tried to recruit a band. When I was forming that band, I, I, I wanted Lisa, my wife, as the lead singer. And I wanted I was going to play lead guitar and I and get a drummer and a bass player, but I couldn't find a bass player. So I said, well, let's see if I can find a guitar player. Well, that was easy. There's millions of those. Um, So I said, well, okay, then I'll play bass. So and we did that band for about 10 years from about 77 to 2007, something like that. Now, what was your mix of music, songs, um, even from your solo? Was it fairly similar when you'd go from solo to duo to band? Did you keep the same repertoire for the most part, or did you completely change things, Like especially when you went to um, more corporate wedding? Oh, yeah, that was mostly cover cover songs, and we mostly, we kind of specialized in older stuff. We weren't We weren't particularly modern. We did a lot of Motown and... Um, just songs that seem to suit suit our style. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of guitar-oriented stuff, because I, I was able to recruit a really good guitar player named Jeff Diamond, who I think still lives in Ashburn. Um, and uh, so we did, you know, ZZ Top, or we would do, uh, we did a lot of old stuff, old 60s stuff. So that's what, what that was. As a solo, I did mostly original song well i can't say that when i when i did gigs in bars and stuff like that it was probably uh mostly covers but only barely mostly like it's like 50 50 covers Mm -hmm. and original songs um and then uh and then when when i started with lisa in the 90s and i'm jumping ahead again here um when we started in the nineties, it was mostly original songs uh, at first, but we added it. We kept adding in covers because we had to do, you know, we'd have to do a four hour gig or something. And I, I didn't have that much material. 
Now, when you played solo and you had that 12-string, what do you remember what brand it was? Yes, it's a Martin D1220. Wow. And you still and I, you, you, you say it as if you still own it. I do still own it. I do still own it. I am the original owner of it, um, and I still own it. And um, I don't want to find out what it's worth because I might have to sell it. So... <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not even going to find out what it's worth, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great guitar. I don't use it as much now as I did then. I almost that was almost when I played live. That was pretty much the only guitar I used on on uh, solo gigs. But your le- left hand must have been strong. Well, I don't know. I I don't know. I, it's not really. I, I tuned it way down, so it wasn't as hard to play as it would be if you did it in standard tuning. I tuned it down to C sharp. Wow, that is low because I tune everything to D because it fits my vocal range as I've aged better. The, yeah. uh, and the only thing I tune to C sharp is my baritone because I don't, when you tune down to, to C or B, the thing just gets too thuddy, becomes more, and it, you can't, it just, in my humble opinion, it doesn't sound good strummed. It's fine picking. So I, I keep it at C sharp because that's kind of the in between. Yeah, yeah, that that can be a problem. Um, this this particular guitar handled the low tuning very well. Um, I've tried it on other guitars and it doesn't work. I have a a guitar I now use as a detuned guitar, and, uh, and I've got a big fat E string on it. Mm-hmm. But it just doesn't handle it um, as well as this uh, the, as the Martin and. Uh, something about the way that thing's constructed and it's an old you know this was this was a guitar from the 60s it didn't even ha- it doesn't even have a truss rod in it oh wow i don't i don't you know i don't know how it's held together it's had some work done on it but it's it's really um it's really an amazing guitar now is that the guitar and people will hear this song at the end of the in the show morning glory waitress from 1968 is that mart is that the martin 12 string we hear yes Yes, that would be it. That's uh, the Martin 12-string. That's about the last I used it extensively in recordings. It it pops into recordings every now and then, but back then, that's all I had. Mm -hmm. So when I went to record um, that session, which was five songs, um, that was it. That That whole session was just me and singing and that guitar. Now, did you, were you the engineer on that recording? No, no, it was, uh, the engineer was a guy named Tom Nola, uh, of Nola studios, which was a very, really excellent studio in New York. It's no longer there. He died and I don't know what happened to all their archives, but, um, they, uh, he was the engineer. He did that and he mixed it, you know, uh, in real time mm-hmm. as I was. Now, did did you pick up tricks from him when you were doing that? Unfortunately, no, because I, uh, as I said, he mixed it as he recorded it, and at, when he was recording it, I was playing and singing, so yeah. I picked up. I didn't pick up anything from him. There were engineers that I worked with later that I picked up a lot from, but unfortunately, I never got to do any apprenticing with Tom. Well, let's go back uh, towards that after college, and you're in the the corporate wedding band. How did becoming an engineer work its way into that? 
All right. Now we got to mix up the time here. I think the corporate wedding ban was way later than right after college. Um, I, I left college in 69. Okay. The corporate wedding ban was 97. Yeah. That's a ways away. <laughs> so they didn't, they don't, they don't even, those are two different people. I was not the same, even the same person by then. Um, but I, now I forget your question. That's okay. But we'll pick up from the timeline to where you left off. So I don't mess you up anymore. <laughs> it's hard enough to remember all this stuff. You're doing really, really well. I'm not sure I could do it if somebody was on the other side of the table for me. Well, you know, if you ever want me to, I'll interview you and we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, I've had several people send me, uh, an email after I post a new show and they go, Love that episode with so-and-so. When's someone going to interview you? And it's kind of like, oh, no, no, I'm the guy on this side of the mic here. Uh, yeah, well, I'd be happy to do it. All right. Well, maybe we shall do that. Okay. So bring me up to speed wherever you left off. I can't remember, actually, because I've thrown you on tangents, and I apologize. <laughs> it's all right. But I don't remember where I left off either. Um Let's see. I okay. So I did this sixty-eight session in New York. Uh, I lived in New York. Continued to do solo gigs. I was playing down in the village. At I I, I tried to retrace Dylan's steps in mm -hmm. the village. Um, so I played Gertie's Folk City, Village Gaslight, um, uh, Bitter End. I was very lucky to get uh, gigs at the Bitter End. I got I got booked for the weekend of Woodstock. Did you really? <clears throat> Yeah, and because everybody else was at Woodstock, so, <laughs> so you know, I, 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 because that was to me the the best place to play. Um, it was a great place to play. Now, so was, anyhow, was the bitter end under below ground? Uh yes, okay. yes, it was. Now, not, what what made it so, so good? It wasn't like a mine or anything. It, it was down some steps. Sure. What um, made what made it your favorite place to play or the place to play? Uh, I just uh, it's it's hard to describe. It was the audiences were great. Um, you know, I was I was kind of received like a rock star for some reason. I don't know. Maybe because everybody else had gone to Woodstock, and here was this guy left over from Woodstock. Um. But I don't know. I just I just really enjoyed playing there. I was very well received there. Um, and I got to do more more stuff there than I did at the other places. Sure. Some of the other places I, I didn't get I didn't get all to myself. Um, so at, but at the bitter end, I got at least half a night to myself. So that I just really enjoyed playing there. But uh, <clears throat> anyhow, I left. New York and uh, and by the way, while I was in New York, um, I was pursuing fame and fortune. I uh, I met a guy who was in a well-known band who hooked me up with his agent, his manager, and I auditioned for the manager, and he he said I was, hey, you're great, kid. You know, one of these things, and um, <clears throat> he took my. Uh, recordings that I had done with Tom Nola and said, I'm going to get a deal for us. So he took those and went off to California and I never saw him again. <laughs> <laughs> did you but ever hear, 
That wasn't necessarily his fault because while he was gone, uh, I, I was very whimsical in those days. Now I'm much more, you know, I plan things out. But in those days, I didn't plan anything out. And I decided to move to Boston. Um, and that's what I did. I just moved to Boston. And in those days, it was easy to move because I had a guitar and I had about a suitcase worth of clothes. And that was about it. So I could move, you know, I could just pack my suitcase and guitar and, you know, go off to Boston. And you could take the shuttle from New York to Boston for $19.90, mm. um, you know, and go back and forth all you wanted for, for 1990. And you got on the plane and you handed the, the, the uh, what we used to call stewardess, it's now called the flight attendant, you'd hand her a $20 bill and she'd hand you back a dime. That's how it worked. Huh. It's like the bus. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, I moved to Boston and uh that's um that's when I think I think that's when I started doing uh, solo gigs again. So that's that takes us up until uh I was there until seventy seven. So I did solo gigs all the way no. Excuse me. Yes, all, all the way up and up until '77 when I then went to uh, DC. Now, do you remember some of the venue names that you performed in Boston? Oh boy! If you said them, I could say yes or no, but I just can't. Well, the unfortunately, I have forgotten. I played places. It would have been mid '70s. The uh, in Boston, we played the winery. Um, the Rusty Scupper I did solo. The winery was as a duo. The Scotch and Sirloin, which when you're driving the old Southeast Expressway, it'd be on the right. Couple, it was on the fourth floor, so you could still see it up above. And then numerous little places. Passims, I never, or what it was called back then, I don't remember. Um, and I would go and listen to some performers in you know, Harvard Square, but I don't remember the names of them. Did, were you in Boston proper more or out towards uh, Harvard? Um, both. Um, both, you know, in Boston. There was a place on Charles Street. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the name of. Um, and what I really loved, the reason I stayed in Boston, I didn't go, I didn't just move there. I went there for a visit and loved it so much I decided to move there. About it was the gigs were fantastic. Uh, I could go into a place and and improvise guitar part pieces, and people would love it. Nobody ever loved that before. I would try that in other places, and people would ignore it. But in Boston, they listened to it and they liked it. So, kind of an ego thing, I guess. I just I just love that about Boston. But that was one of the places. Now I can remember places. Just jumping ahead for a second, Lisa and I went to Boston in the 90s and did some performing there. And I do remember some of those places. There was a place called the Cantab Lounge uh, in uh, uh, what's not not Harvard Square, but the one next closer to Boston. Uh, yes. Central, Central Square. So, yes. Central Square. That, that's Cantab Lounge. And there was there was a place in Harvard Square. Um I'm not remembering the names of them at all. Set them, I probably know them. I think you mentioned Passim. I think we did that. Mm -hmm. um, but anyhow, going back to um, 
my first day in Boston, um, those, yeah, I, and there was no band during that time or anything. So it was just solo gigs for, for years. And I would also go um, out to the suburbs um, and play. Now, as I said before, I didn't just play solo in Boston. I had a band. I had two bands. I had one called Branch One, um, and we did mostly clubs. And then I had another band called the Space Opera Band, which we also did you know, bars and clubs and stuff like that, but also parties. And that band did mostly covers, although we did do a fair number of originals. But we we did mostly covers. And we also did, this was pre-Beatlemania, you know, not, not Beatlemania when the Beatles were around, but there was a band called Beatlemania. Mm-hmm. But before there was a band called Beatlemania, we did a Beatlemania set, um, which was 45 minutes of just Beatles. Um, and that was that was a big hit. Nobody had done that before. So it was pretty um, pretty well received. It was, yeah. I mean, we had people screaming, which was, wow, you know, just because they screamed at the Beatles, so why not scream at this? <laughs> the Beatles weren't around anymore. Um, yeah, so we did that. And then we followed that up. We, we created another set called the British Invasion set, which was all the other groups. Yeah. Which started off with Rolling Stones. And then we did Dave Clark Five and the Kinks and those, you know, all those bands. Then we did a 50s thing. We just, that became our theme is we would pick a theme and and do that for 45 minutes. So that really helped us a lot. Uh, get a lot of gigs was that was a, a stroke of brilliance that I can't say that I thought of it was a we had a manager at the time who came up with that idea now was it difficult doing not only your solo work but being in two bands how did you coordinate all that um well I don't it didn't seem difficult no um it it was, it's just different. And it was all, for me, it was all guitar. I was playing guitar in all, in all of those situations. And uh, although it was electric guitar in the bands and it was acoustic guitar on solo, but other than that, you know, it wasn't that difficult. And we didn't, I didn't get an overwhelming number of solo gigs while, while I had those bands going. Um, Cause I didn't have time. I mean, there wasn't time. Most of the most of the band gigs were um, either, you know, mostly uh, three nights, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really have time for that. Now, did you make more money as a soloist or as a band member? Uh, on a, if you're talking about a per gig basis, I would have to say as a soloist. Mm-hmm. But overall, during that period of time, I did more band gigs than solo gigs. So I'd have to say that the total sum would have been greater. Neither one of them made me rich. So. Sure. Now, do you remember what your nightly rate was when you were a soloist? I, mine was, when I played like the winery or some of the other places, it was $100 for a four-hour set. And to, in today's world you're lucky to get a gig for three hours for a hundred dollars has set. I mean, for a night. So it hasn't, you know, the prices haven't gone up. Not kept up with, uh, with musicians. No. So what was your, what was your nightly rate for a solo gig? Do you recall? 
Yes. Um, when I first started doing solo gigs um, in the Boston area, it was like 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. That was in the, in the late sixties, early seventies. Um, and then it, it climbed a little bit and there were certain places where I would, I would have, uh, extended times. Like there was this, there was one place where I played for, I don't know, months. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, you know, I got that up to like $75 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So whereas with the band, with the space opera band, I remember very distinctly that we, we often did like a three nighter for one forty a night. And how many four, in the band? Four people in the band. So, you know, you're talking uh, $35 a night per person. So for the three nights, you'd make, uh, what, $105 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, what was your backline setup with the, those bands? Did you have, what'd you have for PA? Did you just work off the amplifiers? How did you do it? Um, well, I had, it was all those bands in Boston. It was the same PA because I got the PA from one of the guys in the first band I was in and I just, I kept it because, uh, I was the only one that kept playing. So, um, now I, I think it was an electro voice. Mm -hmm. It was two, what would by standards be called very small columns, um, with a head. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I also had a, an old echoplex, uh, wired into it just to give us, you know, give us some echo mm -hmm. on the vocals. But there was no PA of the instruments. It was just, that was just for vocals. Yeah. And we had no monitors. So we couldn't really hear much. But but the instruments were just uh, whatever came out of the amps or whatever. Uh, one one night with the, with the space opera band, we, we had a roadie. I mean, we, we thought we were big time because we had a manager and a roadie. And uh, the, the manager didn't get paid at all. And the roadie got 5% of whatever we made. Well, 5% of $140, you know. Yeah. Uh, but he had a, he got the job because he had a van and he was, he was just a big fan of the band and he had a van. So, um, and his name was Cahoon, uh, Doug Cahoon. Huh. So if you're out there, Doug Cahoon, I'd love to hear from you. But um, one, he used to, he used to get there in advance and set up all the stuff. And then we could stroll in and pick up our instruments and start the first song. Well, one night we walked into this place called the Royal Pagoda where we were playing. And we picked up our instruments and we counted off the song and we bang. And all you could hear was drums. Uh, he had plugged in everything to a power strip. And the power strip was connected to another power strip. And that power strip was connected to another power strip. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and that power strip was connected to the original power strip. Nothing went to the wall. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and how long did it take to figure that out? Um, well, not too long. Not too long. We, um, I remember the song. It was uh, um, Let It Ride by... Backman Turner Overdrive. Mm -hmm. 
which sounds really dumb when your guitars aren't plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't take too long because uh, it was a question of you know nothing worked. The PA didn't work. The amps didn't work. Nothing worked. So we thought, well, we've blown their. We, you know, we've probably he probably ran it all into one plug, and that probably blew the uh, blew the circuit. So that's the first thing we tried is we, well, we asked where, was it a circuit? We said, well, which plug are you plugged into? So that's when we discovered we weren't plugged into any plug. Uh. <laughs> but, um, you know, it gave, gave us the most memorable moment we ever had in that band. I'll bet. So after Boston, you went back to, you went to back to DC, right? Mm hmm so and went back to mostly just doing solo work then. yeah so when did you really get into being an engineer and doing demos and helping other people and producing their their music well my next my my real ambition when i moved back to dc um or moved to dc for the first time really um was i wanted to make a record and I didn't know how to make a record, um, but I had a, I had a bunch of songs. And um, I'm trying to think of what happened. Anyway, the 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 um, I I started compiling these songs that weren't really songs that I felt I could do live, um, but I wanted to record them because I I really liked the songs. I just didn't like the way I performed them. And uh, some of them, of course, I felt needed a different kind of singer. You know, primarily I needed a female singer. And I also wanted to do some um, harmony with other people. Um, so that's when I started looking for, you know, for a long time, I, I worked with various other people to try to find the right mix. And uh, that didn't really happen until the late eight, well, 1990, really. Um, by that time, I had, I had started recording. Let me back up a second. I had started recording when I was living in Miami in the early 80s. I got a Tascam 244, which is a cassette-based four-track recorder. And I worked with uh, some people down there, and we made some recordings. And that's when I really started doing multi-instrumental stuff. But none of it was really very good. I mean, I didn't, I didn't do that. I wasn't very good at that. Um, so, but I just kept working on it. And then I, uh, um, when we, when I moved back to, um, I moved back to the DC area from Miami um, in about '84, something like that. And I got. Uh, I st was still using the Tascam, but I got some other equipment. Like I got a Roland TR-707 drum machine. And uh, I had by that time picked up some uh, some more guitars. I had uh, uh, Ibanez uh, P-Bass, mm -hmm. which which I still have and is still the my favorite bass that I've ever played. Um, and I had an Ibanez 335. These were both... I don't know if you remember back in the 70s, there was there were these copies made by Ibanez um, of Gibsons and Fenders. 
And it turned out during that time, they were making them better than Gibson and Fender were. And, uh, and they're very highly prized now. But back then, they were just, you know, an alternative. So I got those in the early 80s. And, and those were the basis of what I used in, the, in those recordings in the early 80s. So then when I moved back to D.C. in 84, 85, whenever that was, I, I had those. I had a lot more instruments to use, and I had the drum machine, um, and uh, cut a bunch of demos with with that set of equipment. And you know, was working on honing my skills, you know, recording and using those things and using those instruments. Um, then, uh, you know, time goes by and around and later in the 80s, I got a Korg M1 synthesizer, which was the first sort of multi-instrumental thing that you could actually record on. It had, a, it had recording built right into it. So I started using that. It also had a drum machine built into it that was much better than the, than the Roland machine I had before. So I started making more demos. Um, and I started really seriously searching out and trying to find other people to record with. And I ran, uh, I ran some ads in the Washington Post. And one of the people who answered the ad was my now wife, Lisa, who uh, had just returned from Japan, where she had been uh, doing a kind of a exploratory search for possibly moving there and doing having a music career in Japan, which didn't work out. So she moved back and she was looking for work and uh, just the timing worked out great. I sent her a demo. I went to see her play live. She had, she was having gigs. I wasn't gigging at the time. I had kind of given that up. Um, and uh, she was really good. She also it was funny. I, I I went to the first gig I where I ever met her. I gave her a cassette of a whole bunch of stuff, probably too much, probably 20, 20 songs. And said, I'm some of these I'm planning to make an album of. And I, I'm I'm trying to uh, find a singer for some of these songs. Well, the next time I went back to see her, which was, I think, a week later. She already had learned two or three of them. And played them at the gig. Wow. So that was impressive. Um, and so we made it, we struck a deal. I, I, I said, you know, you know, I, I want you to, to sing on this album that I'm going to do. And she said, okay, I'll do that. If you'll do, I have a bunch of gigs <clears throat> lined up. If you'll do these gigs with me, I'll sing on the album. So I sort of came, you know, I had I had considered myself retired from live performing at that point. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so that's what we did. And we, we uh, formed a band called The Cause, uh, which was just us. But we also got other people to, to sit in with us to make it more like a band. And... Uh, so it was during that whole period, you know, I would say from 84 through 90 is when I really kind of developed that, uh, that ability to put together multi-instrumental tracks. So 
So then in 1990, we final we decided what songs we were going to record. And we went to uh, Bias Recording. We, we actually checked out a bunch of studios, but we ended up going to Bias, which is in Springfield. And uh, <clears throat> met with a guy named Tom Dawson, who was the main guy there. And uh, booked some sessions. And uh, we started recording an album um, that was recorded between that time and, oh... I don't know. It took us several months because I had to kind of pay as we went, you know, mm -hmm. you come in, you record a session, you pay for that session. Um, so, uh, but we, by, by the, by sometime in 91, we had a full album recorded and we released it. We had a big um, CD release party, got a bunch of press, um, through some contacts we had, uh, got some reviews like in the post and stuff like that. And we got, and we, a bunch of the songs that were on the album got on the radio, which was kind of a stroke of luck because, um, uh, we had a bunch of different kinds of songs on the album. And, uh, so this, you know, uh, DC 101 would play certain songs. The WHFS would play different songs. You know, there was uh, another one called uh, another station called W Light, which played different songs because we had like acoustic folky stuff on there. We had uh, dance type music on there. We had rock stuff on there. It was just, you know, it was just kind of a stroke of luck because we were we were advised don't put that album out like that with all these different genres. No, nobody will buy it. But um, it worked out. So that's that's where I really started learning more because I got to work with um, a guy named Bill McElroy, who was an, uh, 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 a Grammy-winning engineer, uh, did a lot of work with especially acoustic and bluegrass groups at Bias Studios. And uh, he taught me a lot about mixing. And uh, so I, I learned a lot of that. I also, <clears throat> you know, realized that if I could do this myself, it would cost a lot less money. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I did. Now, speaking of that album or CD that you put out that got some radio play, is that still available anywhere? No, it's well, it's available for me. I have a, I have some copies left. I have not put it on. You know, it's not on iTunes or Spotify or any of that. Um, I might do it someday, but I but there's so much about it I don't like. Um, I would at very least have to remaster it. Yeah. Before I would put it out. Um, and, you know, every time <clears throat> I go to listen to it to, to evaluate it, I just kind of give up because I say, well, this is going to take too much work to put this in the kind of shape where I would be okay with releasing it. Well, in that regard to remaster it, do you still have all the individual tracks or did you just have the, the CD itself? No, just have the CD itself. So um, that must be difficult to master. When, I, I'm not an engineer, so I have no clue, but is that difficult when you don't have access to specific tracks? Well, you can't remix it. 
Right. Which is what I would want to do with some of the songs. Um, remastering is easy because you only need a you only need a stereo track to remaster anyhow. Mm-hmm. Well, tell um, for people like remaster. my. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying you you only need mastering is only done when you're when it's all mixed. Well, for those of us who don't necessarily know the difference between mastering and mixing, and I do to the for the most part in general, but many people probably don't. What is the difference between mixing and mastering? All right. Well, it's interesting because at one point in the old days, it was all kind of all kind of the same or different. In other words, in the old days, like if you go back to the 50s and 60s, mixing was done while you record. You know, you know, as you record all in the same room, like if you've ever watched any documentaries about an album being made in the 60s, like the Beatles or something like that, they're all recording in the same room. And most of the mixing is either done then or done right afterwards. Um, and then mastering in those days was taking the, taking the mix and making it work on vinyl. So that's what mastering was. But what mastering is now is basically mixing. You're taking all the different parts. And a lot of times things get recorded at different times and in different places. Particularly now, I get stuff from various places that I have to mix that, um, you know, people didn't even know each other. Um, But mixing is taking a, a guitar part, a bass part, a drum part, um, a vocal, all the different, and these are all on separate tracks. And mixing mixing it means making one stereo track out of that or one surround sound track out of that um, that can be played, you know, on the radio or on a, on a uh, uh, you know, anywhere. So mixing is reducing X number of tracks down to two now, mastering basically is making it compatible with how it's going to be listened to. So with mastering, you're trying to make sure that, let's say you're mastering a whole album. You want every song in the album to be um, close in volume so that the people uh, listening to it don't have to get up at, between each song and change the volume. Mm-hmm. You want them to be able to leave the volume alone. You also want them to be able to leave the tone alone. So you want to make sure that they're tonally compatible from song to song. Um, You also want to make sure that um, all any spikes in volume are rounded uh, or or, or tamed. Um, in, In the digital world, there's only so loud you can be. And that's called zero dBs zero dBs full scale. You can't get any louder than that or you get nothing but noise. Mm-hmm. So if you have spikes that are hitting zero dBs, you're going to get this little d- digital distortion. So you want to make sure in mastering that everything stays below zero dBs. Um, but you also want to make sure that it's loud enough, that the overall song is loud enough so that it it's compatible with other songs played on the same medium. Like if you're go, if you're putting something on Spotify, you don't want a song to come on, and then the next song you have to go turn it up. You know, so there's kind of a standard now, which is the average volume 
versus the peak volume. You've got peak volume and you've got average volume. The average volume should be fairly standard. In other words, which is now called, it's now called loudness units. And uh, a loudness unit makes it possible to make, you know, a hundred songs in a row all sound about the same volume. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so right now this the standard for streaming and each streaming service has a different standard, but they're all pretty close. They're all between like 12 and 16 or, or 17. Although in Europe they use, they use uh, 23. So anyhow, it's all getting, as time goes on, it gets closer and closer to where they're gonna end up at 14, probably. So you, that mastering is making the volume even and making it so that it doesn't spike too much or dip too much. So that's, those are main, the main things about mastering. Now, do you prefer to master yourself or do you send it out and have someone else do it? Um, I almost always master myself. Mm -hmm. um, not that I'm opposed to sending it out. Um, but I, it's just something I enjoy doing and I do a lot of it. So that's mostly what I do for people. Okay. These days, that mastering is the major part of my business. Well, and speaking of doing things for people, because we're starting to wind down time-wise here, is I was thoroughly impressed by the CD that you helped Joe Genorio put together. Um, you captured, I mean, he has such a beautiful vocal anyway, Yes. But, but you, yeah. were, you were able to work around his vocal so it never got lost. It was fully supported. And to a listener, at, well, I can only speak for myself, where the emotional side of his lyrics came through perfectly on each song, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was... That was um... That was a very interesting project for me. It's not the type of music that I had really done before, um, but I really liked his songs. And uh, normally when I'm working with somebody, I have all kinds of suggestions. I didn't really have that many suggestions for him as far as his parts. He just, he just basically, the way we recorded that was pretty much, he did what he did. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, um, my job was to build build around that. Well, you did a fantastic job. So for anybody listening who's thinking of making a demo or recording for the first time, if you haven't heard Joe Genorio's CD, you can always contact me and I'll put you in the right direction or you can contact Bill. And Bill, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, you can email me at info at clockwiserecords.com. Uh, that's probably the way I'll see it the fastest. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's the way to reach me. Now you also helped Roy Green record a song. Gosh, I think about three years ago. Oh, did you get to hear that? Oh yes. Yeah. I've got Man. it. I've got it somewhere in my old iMac, I think. And also somewhere in my stack of, I think I have a copy of it on a CD, but the, you know, for those of you who don't know Roy Green, he's the former editor of the uh, Sound Post, which is the famed Frederick Acoustic Music Enterprise mm -hmm. newsletter. It's, it was award-winning under him. And he started playing ukulele and started doing open mics and singing. And 
my best way of describing his stage presence was um, kind of novice in that um, he really had no background in it. And he wrote this song, very simple song, but very catchy. And he was playing ukulele and he had Bill put it together. And I found it. He even entered it in the Mid-Atlantic Song Contest, which just made me feel so good. Unfortunately, didn't win anything because there's thousands and thousands of entries. But you did a fantastic job in taking what he did and made it sound just like he was standing in front of me. Oh, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that. I I really enjoyed working with Roy. Roy's got to be the nicest guy I've ever met. Oh my gosh, I totally agree with you. I was thinking of him earlier today. Not so much because I I wanted to bring him up in this conversation, but I miss him being around. And well, of yeah. course we don't see too many people in the last year anyway. However, I would see him on a regular basis. He would he was one of the few people who would come out and hear me when I'd perform. And he would just show up and he'd show up on that little big wheel thing that you see a lot of the young kids ride with his helmet and his gloves and everything. He'd walk in, have a glass of wine, listen for half an hour, and they'd say, well, I got to get going. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, he, he probably he may be back in this area at some point. He's living in North Carolina right now, but um, he, he may be back here sometime. He's, he's going to get closer. He's planning to move from North Carolina to Bowie. And then, but he still owns a house here, so he he may get back here. Well, I hope he does. So if someone wants to make a demo, in other words, record a song, what do they need to bring to you? Um, The best way to do this, and of course there's a million ways to record a song, but my preferred way is for them, they should, however they can perform their song, if if they're going to be the performer, then make a recording and it can be on a phone. It doesn't have to be, you know, a great recording. It just has to be clearly audible. So a, a phone is fine. Um, if, if they make a demo of the song, if they don't play anything, just sing it acapella or um, if they play guitar or piano, use that um, and give me that recording. That's the, that's the first step. Um, and, and any other uh, written instructions they want to give me, like any ideas they have, like, I really hear this as a piano thing or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then what I generally do is I'll take that, their demo and I'll make another demo of instruments, usually just something very simple, like, um, just usually just piano, simple drums. Often it's just that, just uh, piano and simple drums. So that, it, so that there's a, a rhythm, you know, and I, was, and I, and I use, um, and this is all done in MIDI. Uh, if people don't know what MIDI is, it's, it stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. And basically this is a way of using a computer to play an instrument. So you can actually take a, a synthesizer and plug it into a computer, play it. It will keep track. It will it will record it as a MIDI and instead of as an audio track. It will be a MIDI track, and the MIDI track 
the advantages of a MIDI track is A, you can edit it easily. B, you can make that same piece a different instrument. So you could take a piano track and make it come out as a harpsichord or a guitar or a, a, fleet, of tac, a fleet of saxophones. You can do anything you want with it. And you can also change the tempo. So I'll make that a demo that way, a totally MIDI demo. I'll record that MIDI demo, send it back to them and say, you know, practice this and see if this works for you in terms of rhythm, in terms of pitch, in terms of uh, uh, tempo, everything. You know, is, is this comfortable to sing with? And they might write, they may answer me and say, well, it's too fast or whatever. And so then I'll, I can easily make adjustments because it's all MIDI and I'll send them the revision. Once we come up with something that they're comfortable with, they come into my studio and sing with that track that they've been practicing with. So there's nothing unfamiliar about it. They're already used to doing this. Um, now, none of the stuff that's on the MIDI is gonna, is gonna remain in the final thing. That's all gonna get discarded. But I now have the exact tempo. They're singing with the thing in the correct tempo and everything. So that's, that's the procedure. The first thing they do is you know, give me a, a demo and any, any other instructions or wishes that they have. Well, you have on your website, and the website, folks, is clockwiserecords.com. You have, in, as you go onto the site on the left-hand side, it says video, it says home services, video demonstration, Bromfield Music, and then grooving in the hippocampus, which is kind of leads you over to, to Lisa's side of the website. But if you click on video demonstration, it'll pull up a site or a page where Bill is doing a demo on recording a song, part one and part two. And he just does a very simple, um, shows you how recording a song happens in a very simple way. And I've watched it three or four times over the course of the last two or three years. When I first met you, I, I somehow I found it. I guess I just Googled you and it came up. And yeah, it's really... It's on YouTube. So if you Google, if you, if you do a search on YouTube... That's where it is. Yeah, and, but I was so, because in the beginning, of course, it's very simple because he's just showing us how, you know, a song goes together. And it was amazing to me as to how good it sounds when you play the final mix. And it's all just simple layering. So if those of you who are thinking of doing something and you want Bill to help you, that would be a good place to see how songs are put together from a recording standpoint. But also take heed with what he just said. And um, maybe you can come out with a, a song or two or three or four or an entire CD like Joe Genorio did. Yeah, yeah. Be happy to hear from anybody who's got a song. Well, know. now this whole COVID thing, and it looks like we have light at the end of the tunnel. Many of us, and you're in my age range, have had our first shot and some of us have had our second shot. And, of course, with the warmer weather and people being able to get outside and mix a little bit easier... Um, but you haven't been able to actually bring anyone into your recording studio for the past year. How soon do you hope to be able to do that? Oh, I, you know, as soon as possible, but, um, you know, I have not scheduled anything yet and I'm, I won't be scheduling anything until, you know, I, Lisa is not only a great singer, she's also a nurse ah. <laughs> and, and specifically she's an infection control nurse. Oh goodness. So, 
she will give me the final word on when I can, you yeah. know, we don't have anybody in the house. We, we literally the only, you know, there have been a few people in our house and most of them have gone into the house by themselves just to use the bathroom. Um, so we have any visitors we have, we, we have them on the, on the back deck mm-hmm. out in the open air. Uh, we have heaters back there. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I had, I would have told you a year ago that I really thought by June of 2021, but now I don't, I think that's a little ambitious, Mm -hmm. but that's possible. I certainly think that, that, uh, based on what I'm looking at with regard to the numbers, it can go either way at this point, Yeah. but by the fall, we could be pretty much back to normal. Or by fall, we could be worse than we've ever been. Yeah. Um, and it really depends on uh, how people, how seriously people take this final stretch. Because well, too many people are not taking this final stretch very seriously, and it's it's making it not so final. Well, I'm hopeful, and I'm wishing for the normal side of things as soon as possible. And, you know, the, it's amazing to me, and we, I'm going to have to end here shortly, but it is amazing to me that an entire year has gone by. Looking back, because I remember back in March, uh, driving into town and being the only car on the road between my house and almost downtown, which is about four miles. And the difference between then, of course, we knew nothing and everything was a total question mark back then. But it's amazing to me that it's been an entire year so, yeah. you know, and I know as we age, time tends to compress. Um, I wish yeah. it didn't, but it tends to do that. But yep. I'm, I'm hopeful that things are going to get better. And so you and I, so I'd love to sit down with you and just put some stuff together. It'd be so much fun. Yeah, I, I, I would love that. I would I, love that. I am hey, horrible in the we, studio. Go ahead. Before we go, can I plug one thing? You may. Okay. Um, on April 30, I'm not sure when this, when you drop this. But, this will be not this week. It'll be next week for okay, you and so, I. Nobody knows that now, but right. So April thirtieth, there's going to we're going to be doing a virtual show, um, and we don't know the we don't even know what platform we're going to use. But uh, it's called Invisible Systems, and it is uh, you can sign up for it on on uh, what's it called? Event. Oh God, I don't know the name of it. Eventbrite or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, you can find it. Uh, I have more. Anybody who wants information about that, they can email me. But uh, it's Lisa's show that she wrote um, with regard to her personal experience with white white suprem- white privilege and racism, and it's eight songs and stories, and she does it with a woman. Uh, named Angela Bauman, um, and uh, it's a really good show. Well, and, what what I want you to do is about a week before is send me an email so I can include it in my weekly update. Okay, because that's probably that. the best way to get it out to at least four hundred and I think there's four hundred and fifty eight people on the email list now. So that's a good size number. Good, that's great. That's great. Well, Bill, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And I I do look forward to getting with you in person, getting together with you in person. Me too. So you have a terrific rest of your day and 
I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we see each other in person sometime in the next six months or sooner. Great. Great. Looking forward to it. All right, Bill. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank right. you, Tom. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was Bill Bromfield from Clockwise Records. What a fantastic conversation that was. He's done so much in the course of his short lifetime and uh, just a, a lot of fun. He's It's amazing how he and I, I was a few years behind him in performing, but we've played maybe not in the same venues in the Boston area, but I played in the Boston area about the same time. He was starting to wind down when I was really hitting my heyday back then. So it's really fun to to uh, to chat with him. But we're going to end the show with a song that I had mentioned to him is my favorite of all the songs he sent me. And he thought this was interesting because he recorded it in 1968 using that Martin 12 string. It's called Morning Glory Waitress. A morning glory waitress seats herself among her friends watching a film. I miss her friends, she dreams of all the men she wants, the men whom she should have. Daily it's her wedding day between each order taken and each order filled. With all the people round her and the church which shoves her onward in harmony with her well-ordered mind. It's funny that she doesn't like to be
The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.